So this show's legit, dude. Mark Harmon's been on. <laughs> cool. That's how you know. Go ahead and take your speed up. your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. Now, normally on my left it's Chris Henry, but we have somebody who has transitioned from guest to host. So what's your name, son? Dennis Dunbar. So Dennis Dunbar, director of... Flight Operations. Director of Flight Operations at EAA. Dennis, it's good to have you back on this, uh, but in here for you here for the first time on this side of the table. Yeah, I have my back to the door. I'm not really comfortable over here. Well, that's good. <laughs> we don't want you to be comfortable. Um, and, of course, across the table. Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Excellent. And, Dennis, uh, you've, you got us a guest. You got somebody who was stranded here by weather, and rather than just letting him sort of sit around and hang out and wait for the weather and focus on his cross-country flight home, you grabbed him and said, come be on this podcast. So, That's right. Who did you commandeer? Allow me to introduce the eight-time consecutive U.S. National Aerobatic Champion, <laughs> Mr. Rob Holland. Pleasure to be here. Let's uh, use this time then and and uh, help people get to know you a little bit better. Um, I always, uh, like somebody like you who's, uh, who's a well-known figure in aviation, um, I always like to take a few minutes to go back to back to the beginning and uh and say did you did you come from an aviation family at all were you around it as a kid were you were you an out there building models what were your early experiences with aviation um i did not grow up in a flying family i'm the only person in my family actually flies um except for my wife now she flies that's cool um honestly what kicked it off for me was probably two things one i went to the very first Star Wars. I'm old enough to do that, and I thought the Millennium Falcon was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, and you're my new best friend. Total Star <laughs> yeah. Wars nerd over here. And you, then when Tom I was Dennis, uh, you guys can just go. We, we've got to we got to talk Star Wars for a while. I'm a Star Wars nerd. Okay, you can stay. Me so, too. All right, then then we can all stay. Pray yeah. continue, Rob. And then when I was uh, three, my mom actually brought me to a the local airport, and they had a penny a pound for kids to go flying, and that was my first actual flight. So as far back as I can remember, I've always been interested in aviation. Wow, so did you, uh, uh, you went on that first ride, any idea what airplane that was in, your, your penny pound ride? <laughs> it was a long, I don't know, it was a Cessna or something, sure. I, mean, I was three, so. <laughs> um, and then did you, did you do the, the end of the model route at all? Did you get into that side um, I built model airplanes, um, you know, lots of toy airplanes, just anything that had to do with aviation I was excited about. Right. But then uh, when I was a little bit older, um, my dad brought me to an air show, I saw people flying upside down. And that was it. I was hooked. All the models were hanging upside down from the ceiling after that. <laughs> I, I knew I had to fly upside down someday. That's fantastic. So what was your path then to go from the kid with the upside down models to your your first flying lesson? What was your flight training like? Um, I actually went to uh, Daniel Webster College, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. But that's where I got all my ratings and my degree in aviation. And that's, that's uh, New Hampshire, right? New Hampshire, yep. And that's where I learned to fly. And um, my freshman year, I met a gentleman at the... Uh, airport. I was just walking around checking out airplanes. His name is Ned Crowley. He's still a friend to this day, but he had a beautiful Steen Skybolt. So I asked him if I could take a picture of it. He was just washing it. And he's like, yeah, but would you rather go flying? I was like, yes. <laughs> so that was the first time I was actually upside down in an airplane. It just wow. reinforced everything I already knew. That's what I wanted to do. So your first time inverted was in something open cockpit. It was open cockpit and, and experimental. 
and experimental. That's oh, that's fantastic. So no, no apprehension about that at all. No about feeling, uh, you know, hanging from the seat straps. No, I loved every second time. of it. Oh, that's very, very cool. You yeah. mentioned your dad took you to an air show, and you're getting, yep. you remember who was at that air show by chance? Leo Ladenslager? Uh Leo was not at that one, but um, so actually, what sparked all that? I was home sick from school. Um, <laughs> watching MTV like I wasn't supposed to, and uh, Van Halen Dreams came on with the Little oh, Angels. Yeah, I thought that was so cool. And then a few weeks later, I saw an advertisement for the Rhode Island Air Show, and the Blues are coming to town. So I got my dad to bring me there. And when I showed up and saw people flying upside down in the Blues, it so is that the summer up. of '86 when they were flying A4s? Uh, the last year they flew A4s was '86 or '87. I don't know, but they were in um, F18s at the time. Okay, so just '87. Yeah. yeah. My, the reason I asked my my first air show was summer '86, and they were flying the A4s and Van Halen's Dreams video. Yeah. It's interesting. Here What's you say interesting that. when I when we walked in the gates, the very first thing I saw was um, a F14 and a pit special, and they were doing a canopy to canopy pass. Yeah. And I took a picture of that. I still have that picture on my desk. Awesome. And years later, I found out that the Tomcat driver was Dale Snodgrass. Yep. I was going to ask if that was yep. Snort. Yeah. And the pits driver was a guy named uh, Jim Parker, who's an old air show guy. Who's both of them are really good friends now. Yeah. And uh, years later, I was able to do photo shoots with both of them, canopy to canopy. So I got the pictures next to each other. That's the good stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. It's cool when it comes full circle. Well, we probably know why I mentioned Leo Ladenslager, but air show legend and an aerobatic competitor, seven time, and you just surpassed his record. Of uh, he had seven U.S. National Aerobatic Championships, and now you've got eight. What was that like? Uh, it's pretty surreal. Um, I never really set out to do this, try to break any records or anything like that. I just set out to just keep trying to push myself to be the best that I could be, just compared to myself, not to anybody else. And uh, it's been a long road, and I've just have managed to <laughs> do eight of them. So, I mean, Leo's amazing. Um, I only got to see him fly twice, but I've watched videos and studied him a lot uh, he was definitely a hero growing up and still a hero now so to yeah surpass that it's it just happened it's a little surreal so it still hasn't quite sunk in yet well he was a hero to many of us but i couldn't think of anyone better to break that record so good on you well thank you you know that was uh really interesting dennis before we uh before we got started today um and before you shanghai rob to come join us you said that 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 very thing and i think that's worth uh worth emphasizing that if it was just some sort of you know some random person who came along and you know kind of lucked into breaking the record you wouldn't necessarily feel good about it but uh but dennis was very 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 adamant that uh that rob that you're somebody that everybody would root for and you're somebody that uh, that we would all look at as as fans and spectators and friends and say you know this is a guy who's who's earned it and deserves it i appreciate that thank you so, Rob, let's, let's back up for a second and talk a little bit about how the aerobatic uh, competition works, because I think there's a lot of people in aviation, um, even some that are very familiar with it, that don't really understand how an aerobatic competition ne necessarily works. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what the format is, what you're scored on, and then more importantly, how do you work up to that? Um, you know, how do you um, practice throughout the year and, you know, really have a routine that keeps you at that high level for now eight consecutive years? So competition aerobatics, um, it, I hate to make the comparison, but it's actually judged a lot like figure skating. Um, and it's made up of uh, three different programs. That That's explains the outfit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You can't see him, everybody, but 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> now, it's made up of three different programs. So there's um, what's called the known sequence, which is a sequence that's published at the beginning of the year for the category. Everybody flies the same thing. There's a free, which you design yourself, but has to meet certain criteria and a certain number of points, certain figures are required. And there's an unknown, which you get 12 hours before you fly it. Nobody can practice it. You just have to study it and go do it. And then the, uh, the combination of all three of them determines who the winner is. And as far as uh, preparation, it's just flying, coaching, having people watch you, and just, you know, just staying at it. I mean, it's 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 a pretty tough sport. So how do you how do you um, do the coaching? Do you, do you have somebody like come out to your practice box and uh, you know just just uh, observe you from the ground, uh, give you give you pointers back to the cockpit? So I've been pretty lucky these past few years. I got to know um, a really famous French coach. His name's Coco, and uh, I bring him over from France, and he coached the French team for years, and they've been very successful. And uh, yeah, he sits on the ground with the radio, and um, I mean, you brief everything before you fly, and you go fly. He coaches you through the radio to get on the ground, debrief it, and then go to it again and try to do it better. And how many, um, how many flights or how many hours do you think you practice uh, per year? A you know, lot. S- exclusively um, this. I know you also obviously have the air show program Yeah, too. so, I mean, a typical year for me is I spend the first three weeks, three or four weeks of the season, usually in March t- uh, time period, and I'll fly every day three times a day just to get back into flying, to work up an airship routine, to work up a little bit of competition stuff, and to try to work on new things that I've been you know, having in the back of my mind. And then I practice for every show. I practice in between shows, wherever I can. I, I love practicing. I mean, you get better practicing. You don't get better flying airships. Um, but then I'll take three weeks a year and dedicate it to just competition practicing. Because airship flying and competition, it's similar but it's really two different worlds it's well it's figure skating and it's ice capades and it's really <laughs> that yeah. metaphor just won't yeah. go away will it no it won't but <laughs> so so the air show is the ice capades yeah yeah <laughs> you hear that unfortunately yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah we gotta work on yeah we gotta need a better yeah yeah but you know yeah, I, mean. I i love it i'm never gonna let it go <laughs> I just... uh so yeah i take three weeks a year and uh, just dedicated that to competition practice and trying to get ready for the nationals or the world championships if they happen to be that year. So between the world championships and your and your air show routine, is that is that full time work for you? Yeah, that's all I do. I just fly air shows for a living. That's so it. I guess competition technically is kind of a hobby since uh, I, guess I don't so. make any money out of it. That's that's excellent. So um, uh, this year there was uh, somebody had mentioned you may have flown a different airplane. Yes. So let's talk about the airplanes you've flown over the years, and then and then what led you to flying something different this year. Um, well, for I've flown a lot of different things. I've been pretty fortunate. Um, but as far as air shows, I started off in a pit special in S two C, then I moved to a uh, big engine ultimate biplane, and then I ended up in an MX two two seat, which eventually I got a single seat MXS, and now I'm back in the two seat MX two because my MXS kind of died but <laughs> it kind of died um, yeah i was uh i was taken off out of uh nes kingsville at the beginning of this year i just finished an air show there I was heading up to louisiana and uh the engine blew up it actually blew into two pieces geez. yeah carnaway let go so i had to dead stick it down to what i thought was a private strip turned out to be an abandoned strip no one hadn't been an airplane there since 1999 wow. and um it was in texas so hurricane harvey had left a piece of somebody's roof on the runway Still had a direct TV antenna on it and oh, everything. Geez. And my canopy was covered with oil, so I couldn't see. So I touched down. It was actually a pretty good landing, but then I T-boned 
that piece of roof of the landing gear ripped it off the airplane and slid to a stop. Oh. So I walked away. I was fine. The plane did its job and protected me, but the plane is no more. Man. Oh, that's tough. So I had sold my MX-2 to uh, Marty Flournoy. He's an aerobatic competitor in 2012, and he was nice enough to let me lease back the airplane so I can finish out this season. Oh, that's cool. Any any challenges or any issues? Obviously, you have, you've flown that airplane quite a bit before, but uh, anything tough about practicing in one airplane and having that that uh, in, be in your mind and then having to switch airplanes unexpectedly? Uh, kind of. I mean, these airplanes just become an extension of you after a while. I mean, it's, it's like a comfortable pair of pants, and you know everything about it. And then for that plane to go away and have to jump back into something else even though i'd flown it previously it's still been quite a few years sure um yeah i kind of had to relearn how to fly it relearn my air show um it's a fantastic airplane but it's not like the single seater the cg is a little bit different on it so yeah it took a little bit of adjusting i want to uh maybe have dennis get us back into more of the competition stuff in a second but you mentioned as an aside you've been very fortunate uh to fly other things and i've certainly seen uh, seeing pictures of you on social media and things you've, you know, you're at an air show and you get invited to fly with some cool stuff, some yeah. pretty cool stuff. Give us a couple of examples, just, just enough to make us, uh, jealous, but not enough to hate you. <laughs> um, again, I've been, I feel honored. I've been very, very privileged, but, um, I've gotten a Vita ride in an F-15, a Strike Eagle. Um, I've been up with the Snowbirds twice. I've been up with the Blue Angels once and, uh, got to fly with the Thunderbirds a couple of years ago also. So that Blue Angels trip in particular must have been pretty spectacular when you're talking about that early influence. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, absolutely. It was amazing. Now, have you ever ice skated to Van Halen? Because that was sort of the other piece <laughs> of the No, no, the you, puzzle you, you don't want to see me on ice skates. That don't turn out very well. <laughs> Excellent. But skis, you were... Uh, as long as they're on airplanes. I've yeah. only been had skis on my feet once. I made it about 100 feet down the hill and broke my leg in two places, and that was the end of that, so... <laughs> No skis well. on my feet, but skis in the airplane is just fine. So flying, in safer fact, than skiing. Good his to know. First, uh, first time he signed someone off the solo was on skis. Yeah, first my first solo student was on skis. I taught at a little airport, uh, Hampton Airport, New Hampshire, a little 2,000-foot grass strip, great place. And when I was instructing there, we had two Cubs. Actually, they're two um, L4s. But we um, take one and put it on skis, and one would stay on wheels, and we'd only plow half the runway. And I was flying with a student, doing takeoff and landings on skis. He was doing great. I was like, well, not too many people get this chance. Go solo. I wonder how many times that's happened over the years outside of you know, uh, maybe Alaska. It seemed rare to me. That was yeah. pretty awesome. That's Especially your first student. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. I'm uh, trying to talk Rob into coming up here over the winter, do some ski plane training for, uh, for us. So, I'd love oh, to. Oh, that would be very yeah. cool. I'd love to get back on some skis. That would be great. Yeah. Um, but over the winter, because this year you'll actually be stateside in the winter, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your wife has a pretty awesome job and what you do in the winters for the last several years. I have a pretty awesome wife. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah she does a good job. So the past three, almost three and a half years, she's been in uh, Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands doing um, some important stuff out there, working with the military, ballistic missile tracking, space surveillance, and that's only the stuff she can tell me about. Wow. But um, I've spent the winters out there with her and then try to get out there like once during the summer. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. There's no flying, but the scuba diving is incredible. Yeah. Show me some pictures this morning at breakfast with some unique finds. I think uh, pretty yeah. interesting story there. There's some really cool airplanes in that lagoon. Uh, at the end of the war, it was cheaper to just dump stuff in the 
water and then bring it back. So yeah. within a small area, there's a whole squadron of uh, PBJs. There's probably about f- um, 50 SBD Dauntlesses, Corsairs, Wildcats, Hellcats, um, TBMs. Uh, there's three Martin Mariners down there. It's really cool. And then the southern side of the lagoon is uh, Operation Flintlock was the big battle. So there's lots of Japanese wrecks, ships, and airplanes, and some really cool and rare stuff. Yeah, looks like some pretty amazing diving down there. It's unbelievable, yeah. The water's 85 degrees, and 130 feet down, it's still 85 degrees. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about um, how you would design a air show uh, routine that would be different. I know there's many differences, but how would that be different um, in some ways from the uh, from the competition routine that you do? Uh, it's completely different. So with competition, it's all about precision and straight lines and trying to do figures as perfect as you can, quote unquote, classical aerobatics, and trying to impress the judges with how good you can be. Um, with air shows, it's it's a show. You're trying to entertain people. You're trying to inspire people. So it's not. I mean, there's precision there, but it's it's more about some of the flashy stuff and the tumbling and trying to hopefully show people things that they didn't know an airplane could do. So you do, you're you're looking for stuff that that um that's visually impressive. Still requires quite a bit of skill, but is but is has more of the wow factor than you know a, a, a perfectly uh, you know perfectly round loop or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, for somebody who's interested in getting into competition aerobatics, um seems like there's a few barriers to entry there. What's the easiest way in for, uh, for somebody who, you know, let's say they're a, they're a fairly new pilot and they're, they're interested in, in getting into, uh, into aerobatics? So there's a lot of really good aerobatic flight schools out there you can look up. Um, if you go to IEC or call them or go on their website, they actually have a list of aerobatic instructors and aerobatic schools that are out there. Um, but, yeah, that's the first step is just find a good instructor, find an aerobatic airplane you can rent or get some lessons in and, and learn from someone good of how to stay safe and how to do things right. And then it's just a matter of doing it, building experience, getting time in the cockpit, um, get involved in the IEC, the International Aerobatic Club, come to some regional contests. And there's different categories to the sport. So the, the first category is called primary, which is just the real basic fundamental maneuvers. The next step up is a sportsman, where it's kind of the same, but there's more figures to do in the sequence. Um, then there's intermediate, which they start adding more elements to the figures. Like instead of just a loop, it might be a loop with a roll on top of it or a snap roll. Advanced gets more advanced, so you get into pushing and uh, more snap roll type stuff. And then there's unlimited, which I'm flying now, which is just kind of all out as hard as you can get. So particularly in the in the kind of that primary and sportsman category, are there a lot of folks who um, are either in a club or a partnership or something that makes, you know, having access to an aircraft like that uh, easier? Uh, yeah, there are some. There's a lot of people that own their own airplanes. A lot of people are partnered in airplanes. The people that just rent airplanes from the aerobatic school that they happen to be at. Um, UND has a flight program, and they have a decathlon that they bring to some contests. So a lot of their students come down and participate. They were here for the U.S. Nationals. So there's, there's multiple avenues to, to get involved. You just have to find the one that's right for you. Awesome. I, I think uh, a lot of people are sort of surprised, um, you know, certainly here locally, you know, the, the local community finds out that we're having the, the National Aerobatic Championships. And so they'll start calling us. They want to come because they, they want to come see the air show. And I think people are surprised that this, I don't want to say it's, it's not a great spectator sport, but it's really not designed to be a spectator sport would you agree with that yeah um that's a big difference between an air show and a competition too with a with an air show you're watching however many acts fly 
different type acts and different elements of aviation. With a competition, you're going to watch for a particular category, maybe 30 pilots flying the exact same thing. Right. And it's just who flies it better. And what are your minimum altitudes in a typical aerobatic competition? Or what's that, the dimensions of a box like that? The box is uh, 3,300 by 3,300, 3,500 feet tall. Okay. Um, and the floor of it depends upon the category. So sportsman and primary is 1,500 feet. Um, unlimited is 1,200 feet. Advanced is 660 feet. And unlimited is it's 100 meters, which ends up being like 328 feet. Gotcha. So, even the, uh, so even the lowest is still obviously... Nothing like what we're used to seeing. Yeah, it's not. Passes at an air it's show not air shows down on the dirt altitude, right? Yeah, which yeah. there's a lot of very obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, reasons why that's the case. So um, after the the national championships, now does this? Uh, what position does this put you in in terms of of international and and world competition? So I made the U.S. aerobatic team again because. of my placing um, because I came in first it actually makes me captain of the team the next world championships will be next August in uh, Chateauroux France so now it's up to the team to stop practicing and get ready and make the preparations go over there and see what we can do you have a rough idea how many countries uh, send teams to the, the national the world, the a, t- national a typical I mean it varies but a typical world championship is usually about 60 pilots from about 17 or 18 different countries wow okay um who were the ones? Uh, who were the really the ones to beat? The French, really? Yeah, the French are outstanding. Yeah. Interesting. They have a very good program over there. Half their team is actually military, and their uh, their full time military job is to be aerobatic competition pilots. Ah, that's yeah. That hardly seems fair. <laughs> but uh, um, and what about the Russians? How do the Russians do these days? The Russians used to be outstanding. Uh, they still have a couple of really good individuals on the team. But as a, a team itself, they're not as strong as they used to be. Interesting. Interesting. Was there any sort of mentor who helped bring you up in aerobatics? Um, a lot of people, actually. Um, so my first aerobatic job was actually teaching aerobatics at Mike Goulian's flight school in uh, Bedford, Mass. And from there, that's when I learned you could fly aerobatics and have other people pay for it. So I ended up starting my own aerobatic school, and that's what snowballed into air shows and everything else. But um, lots of mentors. I mean, I just I've all, I'd always approach people and ask questions, and um, I think one of the biggest things I did was I've always tried to watch everybody else, and then as far as actual like the issue routines, not do what they do. It seems like everyone's always trying to like copy the other guy, and I didn't want to fly what everybody else was flying. I wanted to fly something different. So there's a lot of good lessons. There's a lot of um, good procedures you can learn from these people. But it was more about, okay, he's doing that, so what can I do that's different? Well, you certainly have several maneuvers that are your sort of trademarked, if you will, Rob Holland specials. You want to – how do you come up with that? How do you take oh, us through a, that process? It's, it's a disease. <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, I mean, I got the luxury where it's my full-time job that I can think about it full-time. I don't yeah. have to think about going into the office or anything like that. But, you know, you wake up at 2 in the morning with a thought in your head going, I wonder if an airplane can do whatever. So I'll just think about it for months before you even try an airplane, the dynamics, the gyroscopics, what could go wrong, what could go right, the inputs. And then um, eventually go up really high and try it in the airplane. And nine times out of ten, you end up going, no, an airplane can't <laughs> can't do that. <laughs> but every now and then you stumble upon something, and then you just have to work it and grow it and make it safe, make it routine, and then you can stick it in an air show. 
It's uh, I'm, it's interesting you mentioned Gulliani earlier because I remember when you were kind of newer in this business and Mike was helping you get going and and I remember now watching Mike watch you fly and uh, it's fun to see that relationship and how how you guys have been able to stay tight through the years and, oh, yeah. and all I mean, that. It's a lot of anybody who knows Mike, he knows he's just a amazing yeah. person. So he, he's helped a lot of folks get yep, started in absolutely. this business. So. He's an incredible pilot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but one of the other, you know, we also, we, we do get to have some fun in this business and I'm going to talk about a specific maneuver that we did this year, act, if you will, that we did this year at Oshkosh. That was kind of fun. The Adam, which, uh, I believe started in Jacksonville a couple of years ago, we yep. were talking with the Patriots and yep. you and Bill Stein, take us through how the Adam came to be and what it is. Well, the, it actually started off as the, the ribbon cut. Yeah. But, um, again, just yeah, trying to think. Yeah, the Adam kind of came as That came a, later, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's, again, it's just trying to think outside the box and think of something different. There's a lot of airshow performers do ribbon cuts, inverted, knife edge, and it's all cool. But how do you take that to the next level but safely? So I kind of thought, well, what if you hung a ribbon between skydivers and cut it that way? And then Bill Stein was there, and we started thinking about more. So well, what if you hung two ribbons and did it opposing between skydivers so we worked with the patriot jump team and they're fantastic um worked out all the you know the the routine to it and how to do it in the safety and yeah we introduced it at oshkosh so you have three guys with two ribbons strung between them and then the parachutes and at about 500 feet bill stein and i come in opposing each other knife vision cut the ribbons between them that was uh it was fun to see two years kind of in the making that actually work uh, what better Oshkosh. place to debut at the yeah, Oshkosh that was, that was fun very so cool we'll have to do that again okay that was that was absolutely incredible and you know you see something like that as a as a spectator or at least a non-participant and you know my first thought is well I would love to have been in the room when this was first suggested and you know where people was anybody laughing? Did anybody look at this and say, "Well, that's crazy"? I think that was right after the raccoon attack. Probably right after the raccoon attack. It's well, that's it's always a, when the that's best a story ideas for happen, another right? podcast. Usually, <laughs> when something like comes up, people do kind of laugh, and then after a while, they're like, "Actually, you know, that might be something. It might actually yeah. work." Um, I've got to know raccoon attack. Is that? Oh, it's please a, tell me if that's code I'm, for something, or if there was an actual raccoon involved. Well. In 2004, there's an actual raccoon, but this was uh, there is a simulated raccoon involved in the attack that occurred two years ago. All I'm going to say but is the raccoon one. Right. Let's just uh, <laughs> save that for another pod- podcast there, another Hal. Podcast. Leave it dangling. <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting your subtle hints here, Dennis. Drop the raccoon. I got it. <laughs> Still. That's amazing. A, a, a little bit, a bit of trivia for you. I, uh, um, I don't know if you had worked this out yet, uh, but on a previous episode of the Green Dot, after we uh, momentarily forgot our chemistry, we figured out that you were recreating a uh, helium atom. I've, oh, I am. Oh, okay. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, we yeah. talked right. about, yep. that. Yep. about yep. that. Two electrons. So that, that makes sense. Yep. yep. That's right. And, then, and didn't we get it then wrong said, on the episode? Well, yeah, I, I, I said it was oxygen originally, but yeah, it's helium. Oh. H, or, yeah. But there was a H-E. correction. Yeah. yeah. So how many protons and neutrons are in that? Oh gosh! <laughs> because there's, there's three, there's the three parachute Rob, guys like in the middle, this. so you only got three. Well, uh, oh gosh, you're putting me on the spot for like chemistry. I remember from like 15 years ago. <laughs> 
We'll have to figure that one out. But okay. uh, yeah, we'll include a diagram of the helium atom in the uh, blog post that accompanies the yeah. podcast, yeah. and then yeah, we'll, uh, and then we can let the listeners sort of figure out which uh, you know which person plays which component. Absolutely. Yeah. Now we always, uh, you know, part of our job here at EAA is to advocate that kids go into uh, science and math. And uh, I always tell the kids to not follow my example. Uh, (laughs) Do as I say, not as I do. Which is interesting because Tom is seriously like one of the smartest guys on the planet. It's a very, this is, uh, I'm uh, taking some joy here because I am not. And uh, watching Tom not quite have the answer here. Something I don't see often. So, well, Tom is uh, is not actually a chemist. Uh, so, and that's, uh, <laughs> but that's he for... excels at everything else we throw him into. So that's true. You yeah. flatter me, but yes, so. thank you. <laughs> um, coming up next on the We Love Tom Hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and the uh, the uh, coming back to to uh, to Earth for a second here. Um, the uh, um, previously uh, the. Um, uh, Aeroback championships were held, I think, for a long time in Texas, correct? Okay. Uh, and then for the last two years, we've had it here in uh, in Oshkosh, kind of kind of bringing it home uh, to uh, you know to, to our headquarters here and IAC, obviously being a division of EAA. Um, any, uh, I guess, flying wise, there probably aren't too many differences. Maybe a little bit weather uh, as you're experiencing right now, but uh, um, any other um, big differences between the two venues? Um, has, has it been working out pretty well here in Oshkosh? Yeah, I mean, there's there's differences in this because this, I mean Texas was a great venue and it served the IAC well for a lot a lot of years. Uh, eventually, the airport I mean it just it's getting built up, it's getting more busy, so it's just hard to have a competition there. So we had to find a new home, and what better home for the IAC than Oshkosh, which is home. So I mean the facilities are great, the people are great, um, people are very welcoming. Last year there was a couple of small hiccups that we worked out and it was much better this year. But I mean. Even with that, last year was a completely successful championship. We had another successful one this year. So, yeah, I think it's been great. I love the facilities and love the venue. So now that the competition is behind us, we talked a little bit about uh, about going to the world championships. Now this puts you in the position of being captain of the team. Um, what do the details of that look like? Do you Are you getting a team together? Are you going to be practicing together? What, is, what does that actually mean, and, and step us through those details from now until that competition in France? Yeah, so we already have a team. It's, um, it's determined by the, the top placers in the right. unlimited category if they try out for the team. So the team's been established, and now it's a matter of um, hopefully trying to do a little bit of fundraising so it's not so much out of pocket because it's mostly out of pocket to get there. Um, and, yeah, we'll put together some training camps, train as a team, have a coach come over to, to train us, and then it's a matter of trying to get airplanes over there and do the competition. Now, uh, when you're talking about competing as part of a team, um, we're still talking about flying individual performances, correct? Yes, or it's not. It's not like formation it's, or anything it's not like for, that. Yeah, so you're not putting you, together you formation sh- routine. It's either. it's a bunch of individuals competing as individuals, but the top three places per team, their scores get combined to have the team standing. Right. And uh, and where do the judges come from? Are they the, all French? Because that's they, got they, me suspicious, right? They there. are not all French. They're, uh, they're 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 international judges. They're supposed to be independent from the teams. There's a U.S. judge that goes over there. Okay. Um, so there's usually seven to nine judges from multiple different countries. And you know and that that raises a question I've always uh, wondered about too. Is uh, you know, we talked about the altitudes uh, the, that in, in any competition these are flown you know, higher, I think, than than a lot of people might expect. All the judging is done from the ground. Yep. Um, are the judges all uh, expert 
aerobatic pilots, or is there a different skill set involved? In other words, can you be a can you be a, a really good judge uh, without necessarily being able to, to to be the best pilot out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a completely different skill set. Um, I think sometimes actually being a really good aerobatic pilot and being a judge might put a little bit of bias in there because. But I mean that's a different conversation. But yeah, there's um, yeah, there's some really good judges. They tend to see all the things they're supposed to see, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Huh. I have a question. Yeah. Arresty. Mm-hmm. Does every country use Arresty as the they standard? Do. Yeah, it's an international standard. And maybe our listeners, some may not know what Arresty is. Sure. Arresty is um, a way of drawing out <clears throat> figures and aerobatic maneuvers into a sequence that you can look at and be able to kind of sight read as you go. So if every nation uses Arresty mm-hmm. as a standard, Arresty could be considered the language that unites the world. That's wow. that's, that's pretty deep, Dennis, but that yes. So to... aviation, in a sense, could be the bridge to bring world peace. Well, pilots, no matter where you're from, we all speak the same language, right? That's right. Uh, but I hope, actually, you know what? Enough of the world peace. I hope you guys go over there and basically <laughs> destroy and win. <laughs> I was say, I didn't think that uh, Dennis, of all people, would be I on know, the world peace bandwagon for very long. That was, yeah, that didn't but, last uh, long. Yeah. I tried to be. That was, that was uncomfortable <laughs> he, for me. In the words of Clint Eastwood, shut your face, hippie. Yeah. <laughs> God, nobody's ever said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a first time for everything. Oh, man. So, Rob, um, you've flown air shows, you've flown uh, aerobatics, both very successfully. Is um, is there one or the other that you uh, that you prefer doing, that you have more fun doing, or is it kind of uh, um, different aspects of different of of, of either kind of uh, uh, make you happy? I, I actually get asked that a lot. It's a really good question, and I I really like both of them equally. Um, I air shows, I love the the creative side of it. I like trying to come up with new things, trying to push the envelope, trying to just really evolve the sport to make it better, hopefully in the future than it is now. And with the competition, I enjoy the, the, the discipline of it, the perfection of it, and uh, the self-improvement of just trying to make myself the best pilot that I can be. So it's, I don't like one more than the other. They're, they're different, but I like them both equally. That's, that's uh yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, um, the the uh, the competition side, I, I'd, I'd imagine there's a lot of yeah, like you said, there's a lot of satisfaction in getting uh, you know getting something mastered. Um, and I guess the flip side of that is that nobody really knows that you have that mastery, and except for you know kind of the the, the relatively small aerobatic community, whereas the air show uh, uh, side is is completely different. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of. This. mastery i asked you at breakfast today if eight and done anything more to prove you're gonna go for 10 nice round number <laughs> and what did you say rob well i never really set out to prove anything except for to myself and how good can i make myself compared to myself um i don't know as as long as it's fun i'm gonna keep doing it because I mean, at the end of the day it's really what it's all about if it's not fun what's the point so you know i'm gonna go and do the worlds and then i'll come back i'll probably do nationals again and Whatever the results are, they are. But as, as long as I'm having a good time doing it, I'll, I'll keep competing. That's awesome. That's fantastic. And then tell us about uh, uh, your – what do you know about your upcoming air show schedule? Do you have anything? Uh, I have four more shows left this year. I'm trying to get the Prescott, Arizona, which is right. 
why I'm here right now, I'm trying to get there. And then I have um, Fort Worth, Texas, Jacksonville, and Stewart, Florida. Okay. And then do you have a good idea of your schedule for next summer? Or does that all just happen at ICAS? Um, I usually have December? most of my schedule, if not all of it, done before ICAS. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have most of it for next year. Well, we do know that you can see Rob at Oshkosh in 2019. Excellent. Excellent. I that's guess our, that means I'm invited back. I have apparently it does. I think that's our <laughs> you first, all heard it here. That's our first official, <laughs> official. announcement of of, uh, of any particular feature or attraction at uh, AirVenture 2019 is the triumphant return of Rob Holland. <laughs> Ooh, that's I like the way cool. you put that. Yeah. Nice triumphant return. Very <laughs> again. Need the, yeah. Anyway, um, so maybe one last question for you, Rob. It's it's. Uh, it really resonates with me, you know, thinking of you as a kid and, and having these early aviation experiences and then seeing the Blue Angels and that being a thing that really, really hit you and inspired you. Um, do you ever stop and think that now you're the one doing the inspiring, that uh, that there's kids out there that are watching you and saying, I want to do what that guy does? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of part of doing all this to me is trying to inspire. So I was inspired as a kid, and I got to follow and fulfill my dreams. I had a plan A, never had a plan B. People fall back on plan B because they're easier, so just don't have one. Just plan A, and then you have to do it. Uh, unless you're flying across country or something. You know, have an alternate. That's okay. Yeah, well, but. plan A is to be safe, right? So <laughs> Touche. Stay with, stay with that. Um, so, yeah, to, to just try to give back and inspire people to pursue what they want to do, whether they want to fly or whether they want to be a firefighter or a doctor or whatever. Just if you, if you have a goal and a dream, just go for it. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Do you talk to kids after you uh, fly an air show performance? I do. I try to get up to the crowd line and shake hands, sign autographs, talk to kids. Yep, absolutely. That's got to be pretty rewarding right there. Uh, definitely. Definitely. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, Rob, we can't thank you enough again for uh, for coming and joining us today, especially on such short notice. It's, uh, you know, your loss with the weather was definitely our gain. It's a pleasure so, being here. Thanks for having me. And, uh, and Dennis, thanks to you for, uh, for being the first to officially transition from uh, – from guest to guest host. I like this set. It's uh, yeah, this set's easier, isn't it? You're not on the spot. You just you just make him uh, him answer the questions. Yeah, I don't have to talk as much. <laughs> so very well done. Well, and speaking of thanks, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thank you for the great reviews on iTunes, uh, all of the feedback that we get on our blog posts and on social media. Keep on listening out there. Subscribe on Google Play or Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you uh, choose to consume your podcasts. Keep that feedback coming in. If you'd like to just email us directly, you can send it to feedback at eaa.org. And with that and our ongoing thanks, we'll catch up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>